Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today I have a very special guest with me, Arya Fani. Hi, Arya. Hi. It's a pleasure to see you. We're good friends. We go way back, but this is the first time sitting in front of a microphone with you. It's strange. It truly is a pleasure to be here. So Arya Fani is the Assistant Professor of Persian and Iranian Studies at the University of Washington. Congrats on the new job. Thank you. And his book project is entitled Institutionalizing Literature, The Rise of a Trans-Regional Literary Discourse in Iran and Afghanistan, 1895 to 1945. Arya, I have to say that I love your work. I think what you're doing is fantastic, especially looking at both Iran and Afghanistan, not just focusing on one of these countries. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels that people can draw by looking at both. So just generally, your book project is looking at how literature is being utilized in the nation building process in both Iran and Afghanistan. And you start your book from 1895 and you go into the 20th century. Arya, if you could please just kind of lay the groundwork for the historical context of Persian literature, this transformation from adab, which is kind of literary ethics or cultural ethics, to adabiyat, which in Persian is literature. And this transformation that is happening to the development of Persian literature in the 20th century. Thank you, Rustin. As you know, our understanding of Persian literature or Persian literary culture to be a little bit more broad is very much informed by our understanding of political history. So a very common narrative that I was told is that in the late 19th century, in the 19th century, Persian as a written lingua franca is basically taking its last breath in the large swaths of land where it was used as a language of cultural prestige, literary production, political administration. But I'm trying to move away from that political narrative because, yes, it's true that the Mughal Empire has completely lost its power as one of the more wealthy dynasties that had promoted Persian, that Persian now has to increasingly compete with Turkish and Russian in Central Asia and in the Caucasus with Georgian and Armenian and Russian, and obviously in India with English and Urdu, right? So you can make a case for why this century, the 19th century, is a decline of the vast geography in which Persian operated in interconnected networks, urban networks. Obviously, as Niall Green puts it in his new book, the geography is vast but socially shallow. But you can also make a case that there is so much intellectual production in Persian. And so one of the Examples, obviously, is the well-known case of these reform-minded intellectuals who a lot of them did not live in Iran, did not spend much time in Iran. You're talking about Fatali Akhunzadeh, Kermani, Malcolm, Talibov. And they are talking about a number of new ideas, one of which is literature or literature and what is its connection to the nation. Now, it's curious that Akhunzadeh never uses the word adabiyat. He says he wants to introduce in his maktubat a number of uh, what he calls critical lexicon into the cultural vocabulary 
of a literary culture that he deems to be old-fashioned and in dire need of reform. And one of those words is literatur. And so how that term then gets to be translated as adabiyat and then becomes the core of institution building in the first half of the 20th century is basically the story that the book tells. That's great. Thank you for a concise introduction. And so when these reform-minded writers writing outside of what is now Iran, the, the state of Iran, what do they think that literature should be? What are the qualities that it should have and how is it in service to the nation? That's a wonderful question. And I'd like to start addressing it by saying that Akhunzadeh and the generation after him, Talibov and Kermani, they are more cognitively engaged with Iran than physically, right? The Iran of Akhunzadeh is radically different from the Iran of Mizagoli Khan Hedayat, the Qajar courtier who wrote Majma al-Fusaha, one of the most comprehensive literary biographies of the 19th century. And by that, I mean they are on the margins of this nation called Iran. And obviously, this is not a nation state yet. And so they see this nation lacking a corpus that would embody the idea of civility because literature for them is civilizing discourse. And Akhunzadeh himself defines literature as a corpus of prose and poetry. And again, the idea of this in very much in the style of American transcendental thinkers who turned to writers like Saadi, they wanted to create a nation based on a set of morals. And for Akhunzadeh, the concept of literature embodied not just national pride, but a set of morals that the nation can turn to in order to become a nation. This is very interesting for me because, as we know, Akhunzadeh is also, is also called Akhundov. He's an ethnic Azerbaijani, spent most of his time in the Caucasus. And for him, who also wrote in Azerbaijani and in Persian, how did he kind of reconcile and negotiate these two different linguistic and literary traditions in which he's working? That's my first question. And my second question is, how does Afghanistan fit into all of this? If we're talking about a nation of Iran, are these writers also speaking of Persian outside of Iran? And if not these writers, then who's talking about Persian in Afghanistan? Those are all great questions. Uh, there has been work on Akhunzadeh and he is rather marginal to the dissertation. This is how I begin the story with an intellectual like Akhunzadeh who's just dissatisfied with the current critical lexicon that exists in Persian literary culture. Obviously, we can't take it at face value, but for instance, he has this very interesting critique of Reza Khan Hidayat, in which he says to him, in your Rozat Safa, you are telling the story of the Qajars and in one episode of Fatali Shah's conquest of Herat or his attack on Herat, and then he criticizes him by saying, you're composing poetry in the middle of your work of history. And he's like, brother, you need to decide what work you're producing. Are you producing a work of history or is this poesie, as he called it? And so you can see the emergence of certain fault lines that just didn't exist. 
clearly history as if we can consider it a genre in Persian literary production has a very long genealogy of its own. But what is happening in this moment is again, Ahunzadeh is trying to agentfully bring these ideas into closer alignment with his understanding of European literary culture and obviously mediated by Russian through which he was coming in contact with them, right? And I'm far less interested in generally in the book, what European sources they were reading and far more interested in how they were reading them, how they were understanding them, right? And as far as Afghanistan is concerned, really the figure who's at the heart of all of this is also another figure who's living in Ottoman lands and the margins, not even margins, well outside of Afghanistan as a political entity. And that is Mahmoud Tarzi. And there is a lot written on him in a number of languages. And he's the figure who's basically introducing, again, like Akhunzadeh did, a number of critical lexicon into Persian literary culture and Pashto literary culture, even though he did not compose in Pashto. He was preoccupied with it as an important component of Afghan identity. In his newspaper, Siraj al The Torch of News. And for those listeners who are interested in accessing that, these are all available online. Afghanistan is collaborating with a number of American institutions like NYU in producing high quality PDFs and Siraj al is one of those PDFs available online. And you can find that at the Afghanistan Digital Library. Just type it in with NYU and it'll pop up. It's really a fantastic resource. And so again, Mahmoud Tarzi has a column called Adabiyat in his newspaper Siraj al where he talks about Adabiyat as a discourse of nation building, the importance of literacy, the importance of the nation being associated with a body of works that embodies is history, right? And here I have to pause and say that obviously my book project is in conversation with a number of works inside and outside of the field of Persian and Iranian studies or Afghanistan studies. And we're having a moment in the field of comparative literature that is very interested in genealogies. And it's starting with the most taken for granted terms. It's questioning the ease with which we use these taken for granted terms. And what term is more thrown around and used as a universalized, timeless concept in literature. And so you have Michael Allen in the shadow of world literature, colonial Egypt as a site of reading, if I'm not mistaken. Then you have Amr Mufti of UCLA and his book, Forget English, Orientalisms and World Literatures. And then you have uh, Siraj Ahmed, Archaeology of Babel. And all three works in different ways are interested in teasing out the historical process by which language became an index of history and associated with a group of people. And so my work is in many ways in conversation with that uh, scholarly impetus. And in the field of Iranian studies, there's a number of scholars who are also doing complementary work. Farzin Vejdani, who's more senior than, than, than me, has published a fabulous book, Making History in Iran, 
which basically looks at how a group of Iranian historians became professionalized and they created a genre, again, fully canonized now and taken for granted is Iranian history, which just did not exist before. You had dynastic histories and you had all sorts of different works, but national history didn't exist. And currently, Alexander Jabbari at the University of Oklahoma is looking at very much the same questions in Persian and Urdu, Iran and India, and how literary history as a genre is constituted, is created. And so I'm just lucky that I'm in conversation with these extremely productive interlocutors in this fraught moment when we are re-examining the foundation upon which these disciplines are built. We're talking about how disciplines are built. You're talking about the institutionalization of literature. What does this process look like on the ground in the early 20th century in Iran and Afghanistan? Are there buildings of academies or how does the education system play into this? Can you just give us a little background as to what is happening with the nationalization of literature? I'll answer it with an anecdote, with a, with a very oft-cited anecdote. Uh, apparently, Reza Shah was in 1935 or 1934, was having a meeting with his prime minister and other important advisors. And Ali Asghar Hikmat, who obviously tells the anecdote in a way that, you know, he receives all the credit. He says, I don't know what, how he addressed them, but the, you know, exalted Shah or whatever it may have been. He said, you know what the city of Tehran is lacking? And Reza Shah says, what? And Ali Asghar Hikmat replies, an université. And then Reza Shah reportedly says, then build it. And this is in many ways the way the creation of Persian literature as a discipline within the framework of the University of Tehran was understood. I obviously don't take that anecdote at face value. I look at four decades prior to that and I say, a group of people came together. They built these anjumans or literary associations. Within that framework, they came together as poets, translators, writers, they would translate Arabic language, Urdu language, Turkish language, periodicals, European languages. They discussed their ideas and they very much forged the idea of literature, of adabiyat within that framework. So in Iran, one of the more consequential literary associations in the early 20th century, 1916, 1919, was Danish Kadeh, a term that itself is novel a place engaged with Danish or knowledge. In Afghanistan, you had to wait until the 1930s for Muhammad Nadir Shah to commission the creation of Kabul Literary Association that brought together under the auspices of the state a group of intellectuals who all had very different visions and they worked independently. And again, in the case of Afghanistan, the state has more control over prince culture which is obviously the impetus behind this literary production, right? The consumption, creation, and production of print material. However, because none of these intellectuals in Iran or in Afghanistan are working within ready-made models, the state has also limited capacity to control because there is no conspiracy where the state created this model of nationalism 
and forced these intellectuals to reproduce it. And then they built the nation state on it. I mean, the state was not itself a homogenous entity. And some of these intellectuals ran into conflict with some of the radical members of the state. But altogether, they're creating something brand new. And so that, the associations and associational culture later leads to the creation of what we know as institutions of literature, faculties of letters, language academies, national libraries, and publishers. And in these Andromans, in these newspaper offices, what do they want literature to do? What are they writing against? How is the language changing? How is literature changing? What concerns do they have? What features does literature have? What do they try to champion? What do they try to disregard? Professor Amanat has a fabulous chapter in an edited volume called The Persianate World by Niall Green in which he looks at the career of an Indian scholar who comes to Iran at a time when these institutions are rising and his life as this, again, connected trans-regional networks, urban networks, are now giving way to these densely urban and rural areas in which Persian is no longer just a written lingua franca, is also a spoken lingua franca, and is now declared a national language of education at the expense of other languages, right? And so in many ways, the previous model has to do with disappearing institutions. So for instance, in Shah, the art of composition is no longer at the disposal of a munshi or an imperial secretary or political advisor to define. It is now in the hands of a teacher or a university professor to define. So the institutional spaces are changing and the generation that created those Anjumans is very much concerned with this because in many ways, this is in the air. Um, people are talking about it. In Italy, they're having conferences about the origins of Indo-European languages. They're talking about, you know, if you look at the writings of Edward Brown in comparison with the writings of Sir William Jones, who came a hundred years or, or so before him, you could totally see the emergence of this type of thinking when Brown sat down to write his influential a literary history of Persia, he wrote the history of not of a literary tradition called Persian that had poets who composed in it, but then went home and did not speak that language. He sat down and he wrote the story of a race, a territorialized race called the Persians. And so you can totally see that these ideas are already in the air. And so these intellectuals are agentfully trying to make sense of them. They are trying to create that discourse, create those discussions basically in Persian. And it's the culmination of those discussions that they're having that lead to the creation of a conceptual category that we all today call Adabiyat without thinking twice about it. So you mentioned that writers coming from Europe and coming from America to write about Iran and Afghanistan, they're talking about a group of people called the Persians, right? And so it seems that this territorialization and this race, as they described it, is tied to Persian language. But as we know, in this 
area of the world, Persian was just one of the languages that were being spoken on, let's say, the plateau and what is now the state of Afghanistan and also in Iran. So what happens to these other languages? What happens to Azerbaijani? What happens to dialects? What happens to Luri? What happens to Baluchi? Like what happens when all of a sudden Persian literature takes supremacy and becomes officialized or becomes formal? Let me explore that question from my angle, which is, so in the 1910s and 20s in Afghanistan, 1930s, you have a group of intellectuals that are putting forth these ideas, right? That every nation is in possession of a literary tradition. One nation, one literary tradition. And that literary tradition embodies the history of that nation, the genealogy of that nation, the essence of that nation. No surprise that Persian literature is really seen as the most exalted and celebrated expression of Iranian identity, right? I mean, the generation that my work doesn't deal with very much reproduces this up until the current moment is because in the case of Iran in 1925, the first Pahlavi dynasty, and I don't say Reza Shah because I want to include the intellectuals who are surrounding him. It's not just a one-man show. They have a certain political appetite to create a nation state. And this is how that discourse created well before them gets picked up and then is amplified. So for instance, Muhammad Hussein Furughi and his son Muhammad Ali Furughi, who are incredibly influential as these figures who are writing a newspaper called Tarbiyat and they're also lecturing in Darul Funun type schools in Tehran and are talking about literature as a conceptual category, their ideas now are all of a sudden become commonplace. I mean, there's a huge gap there. How do Iranians, so-called Iranians, come in contact with the idea that says, we're Iranians, our ancestors were also Iranians, and our language, our literary heritage is Persian. They come across that when national education established, when missionary schools have to basically pick up and go, and the government now has to preside over who gets to teach and what do they teach. And in Afghanistan, it's the same. And when you, for instance, look at the University of Tehran or University of Kabul's faculty of letters undergraduates, you begin with nine, then you go to 25, then you go to 150, then you go to 500. And this is how that discourse that might have really had a very different fate. It might have been part of the repository of our intellectual production, something that a historian might come across as a curious footnote, now became a massive component of the national cultures of Iran and Afghanistan. So it's the political appetite to build a state. And that's why I call Adabiyat a discourse of nation building. Why Afghanistan and Iran. I mean, obviously, both places where uh, Persian language is spoken. Um, but why is this comparison important uh, for you and your book? But also, why is it important for the field? Methodologically, you don't have a lot of, for lack of a better term, East-East comparative cases. You just don't. You know, For instance, I mentioned Michael Allen's brilliant study in the shadow of world literature, it basically looks at how Egypt's contact with 
colonialism bears the imprint of the type of conversations, the type of ideas then that came to Arabic literary culture in Egypt, right? We don't get a sense of, for instance, how Georgi Zaydan, the famous Lebanese intellectual active in Cairo, how he's engaging with other Arabic in- intellectuals. To some, some extent we do, but we don't go deep enough, right? And obviously, every book has its own purview. But the reason I included Afghanistan is I wanted to show that nationalism, or to be more specific, nation-state nationalism, did not sever all ties did not lead to the collapse of connections, cultural exchanges among Persian speakers. It actually created a different site of literary production and exchange. And so I show how Iranians are talking to Afghans and how Afghans are coming and visiting Iran and how they're writing about each other in their journals and they're sending each other their works and they're engaging. They're contesting each other's nationalized projects, but they're also accommodating them. And so for those reasons, it wasn't even a matter of making an argument. It's just a matter of reflecting that history, a history that has been erased from view Because in many ways, the generation that came after the first professors of Persian literature were less engaged. And they were now by then, the 1950s and 60s, people like Zabihullah Safa uh, or Khan Lari or Shafi'i Katkani or in Afghanistan, perhaps Khalilullah Khalili. They are now inheritors of a ready-made discourse, which was not the case 40 years prior to that. And for those reasons, I call Iranians and Afghans as co-equal conspirators of a shared literary project. So I have two questions here. So the first question is, obviously, when you construct an idea of literature and you're teaching it, there is a particular canon that becomes important. There is a kind of a set of seminal texts that come to define a national literature what is this literary canon? What did it look like? And the second question relates to this is, you say that Afghan and Iranians are co-conspirators in this. Can you give us an example of this back and forth exchange and how it related to the creation of national literatures in both of these places? So the canon has to be put in the context of the time. Prince culture, again, the production, consumption, enjoyment, distribution of prince material was far more advanced in colonial India, Republican Turkey, than it was in Iran and Afghanistan. It didn't really pick up pace until the 20th century in both countries. Less so in Afghanistan, the state had more monopoly over it. So the generation that I deal with, people like Muhammad Taqi Bahar, Abbas Iqbal Ashtiani, Muhammad Qazvini before them, and by the way, they're all men, and this is inconvenient and uncomfortable fact that has to be acknowledged that these men, exclusively men, were an integral part of the creation of national culture in Iran and Afghanistan. First order of business for them was to actually gather around manuscripts. A lot of them produced in India. Obviously, we know that in the 19th century, more books were published in India than in Iran and Afghanistan by far. And so that's why someone like Muhammad Ghazvini, when he comes from Europe, there is so much excitement surrounding his visit because he brings these manuscripts with him that excite people like Abbas Iqbal Ashtiani, that they're learning from him how to produce critical manuscripts. And so 
This is the first stage of Ganon formation. First, the gathering of resources and seeing what we have at our disposal. Then we can talk about who's in and who's out. But that is far more exciting to me, that stage of it where the boundaries are blurry. You can't just take for granted that the resources and the access to the resources that they have then the, the canon that we know is pretty bounded and pretty settled by now. And the question of Afghan-Iranian exchange. I could give you a good example, one that my chapter four deals with, Mahmoud Afshar, who is at the time producing a very influential journal called Ayande or Future, writes a letter to the Kabul Literary Association in response to the fact that they had sent him a number of their journals, Kabul. And he basically takes issue with the fact that Afghans are framing the Ghaznavids and the Ghaznavid poets, people like Farrokhi Sistani, Unsuri, they are framing them as Afghan. This is the same way Iranians are now framing Hafiz and Saadi as Iranian, right? And for our listeners, I want you to think less of Iranian or Afghan as these biographical facts and more like what it meant to these people then, right? And the response that Afghans gave to Afshar was very interesting because in many ways in his letter, Afshar is conceding some ground, but also trying to draw the line. So he says, okay, I give you the fact that Mahmoud of Ghazni was Afghan, but he was Afghan within a Persian empire, right? And so he says, you can have him, but you have to acknowledge that his translocal homeland was Iran. His local homeland was Afghanistan. So he actually accepts the anachronistic term Afghanistan to be applied to Mahmoud of Ghazni in order to accommodate the project of literary nationalism in Afghanistan because he understands just like every single member of his generation that Persian is not limited to Iran. He understands that there are other Persian speakers outside of Iran who are engaged in a process of national fashioning. And so they kind of write back and forth and Afshar goes to Afghanistan and meets these intellectuals and then comes back and writes two thick volumes of essays called Afghan Name. And so that's one episode of exchange that the book examines. Arya, I just have one more question for you and that's, Okay, so so what? What does this project boil down to? What would you want readers and the listeners to take away from your book project? Ultimately, I hope to help create a more active language surrounding the such taking granted concepts like literature. The title of my dissertation was Becoming Literature, very much inspired by Michael Allen's formula of how adab became literary. Things don't just become a certain outcome, you know. So that is why I am going back to that doctoral dissertation and I'm replacing every passive noun or verb like becoming, formation, with active verbs that reflect the intellectual agency of this generation. Institutionalizing literature, building literature, making, constructing. This is what I want people to walk away with, if they disagree with my conclusions, I want them to say, wow, 
This is a period of very dynamic intellectual conversations that cut across national boundaries or emerging national boundaries. And these people are reading a lot. They're translating, they're discussing, they're traveling. And they have ultimately produced a discourse that sits at the core of institutions that have enshrined Persian literature, both in Iran and Afghanistan, as an integral part of our national identity. And so, again, in, in very few words, Adabiyat doesn't just become literature. It is transformed into literature. And at some other point, I hope we can talk about how we go from adapt to adabiyat, what components are jettisoned, what components are retained. Because the other point of my book is we can just apply the European model to every other case. That's why Amr Mufti's subtitle is Orientalisms and World Literatures, because he understands in every literary tradition there's a distinct genealogy and that agentful implementation has taken a different route. So for those reasons... I've put Iran and Afghanistan in conversation because it gives us insight into how two Persian-speaking societies constructed a discourse in conversation with one another and it looks at that construction from within without worrying about this grand colonial European narrative that just gets imposed and these intellectuals passively copy it and it becomes baked into the DNA of our political and cultural institutions. That's what institutionalizing literature aims to do. Arya John, it's a pleasure to see you, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure is all mine. Once again, for our listeners, that was Arya Fani, the Assistant Professor of Persian and Iranian Studies at the University of Washington. His book project is entitled Institutionalizing Literature, the Rise of a Trans-Regional Literary Discourse in Iran and Afghanistan, 1895 to 1945. If you're interested in the conversation, if you would like to participate, and by the way, Arya, who has written for us before, is very engaged on Ajam Media Collective and will answer your questions for sure. Always he does. So definitely contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and we can continue the conversation there. Until next time.